Well, as we go to God's Word together, let's pray that He would open His Word to us. Let's pray together. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. So continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. May your spirit shine in our hearts now through his word to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be going through the second commandment of the Ten Commandments. If you're visiting with us, we've been going through the Heidelberg Catechism and its teaching on the second commandment. Um, But we always, of course, want to go to God's Word. And so if you'd turn with me to Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, um, we'll begin our reading at verse 16 and read through the end of the chapter. This is uh, maybe a story well known to many of us from Paul in Athens. So Acts chapter 17, and we're going to begin our reading at verse 16 and read through the end of the chapter. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Well, this evening we want to think about God's worship mandate, um, how God wants to be worshipped in his word, um, particularly from the second commandment, uh, that commandment that God made saying, you shall not make for yourself any carved image or likeness of anything that is in the heavens above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Um, We've been talking about how the, the first four commandments tell us about the duties that we owe to God and how we are to worship him. Um, And we might differentiate the first commandment from the second by saying the first commandment tells us not to worship false gods. Um, The second commandment tells us not to worship the true God falsely. Um, God is concerned about how we worship. Um, And that commandment explicitly forbids the uses of images in worship and implicitly forbids all kinds of invention of any kind. Uh, that he has told us everything we need to know about worship in his word um, and has not left it to our imagination, to our invention, to our experimentation to figure out how God ought to be worshipped. He's to be worshipped as he commands us in his word. Um, And that's a very important thing for us to come to grips with, to acknowledge, because worship continues to be a question that many in Christian churches ask. How do we do it? Is it merely a matter of preference? Um, Or is God asking something particular? Um, We can ask these kinds of questions. As one commentator put it out, is worship merely a matter of taste? Are all forms of worship equally pleasing to God as long as worshipers are sincere? Or are some ways of worship acceptable and others are not? Uh, Sometimes people will also point out, you know, we live in a technological age that allows us to do many more things than they used to be able to do. Um, And why wouldn't we make use of all those things that we've discovered since the time of Paul and the apostles, since the time of Christ? Shouldn't we employ some of that technology in service of our work? Um, We can talk about some of those things. Um, But we always have to keep coming back to God's word, uh, that he knows what is needed to be done in worship. He's provided everything we need to know for worship. And he knows that if he leaves it to our ideas about worship, what usually happens is either strange fire um, or a golden calf. Um, And and when we get ourselves in trouble with worship, we're usually like Aaron. I don't know what happened, Moses. This just jumped out of the fire like this. Um, Well, no, that's not how the golden calf happened. It didn't just jump out of the fire like that. They decided to do that. They made it. And you might remember, they didn't call it Baal. They weren't worshiping another god as the golden calf. They made that golden calf and they called it Jehovah. Um, They called it Yahweh. They called it the Lord God. Um, And so, as another commentator said, the Bible reminds us that neither our instincts nor our traditions nor our experiments are reliable guides to worship. The Bible itself is our only reliable guide. We must search the scriptures to find God's will 
to guide us in our worship. Um, And that's very important because we serve a God who is a wonderful God, a Savior God, as we talked about this morning. Uh, But that doesn't change the fact that Hebrews 12 also says that our God is a consuming fire. And so we have to worship him with reverence and awe. So we want to make sure that we please God in our worship and understand what God is calling for in worship. And so we do that through the second commandment. Second commandment helps us to understand these things. And so we want to this evening look at the command itself, um, make some clarifications about the command so we understand it better, and finally consider a caution that comes to us in God's word regarding this command. So we want to think about the command, clarifications, and a caution. Uh, The command is fairly straightforward, and we read that in question 96 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is God's will for us in the second commandment? That we in no way make any image of God or worship him in any other way than has been commanded in God's word. Uh, Don't make any images of him. And what's implied in that command is also worship him the way he wants to be worshipped, not the way we invent worship. Um, Paul was in Athens and he saw how the inventions of worship uh, worked in the lives of people. And it grieved him in his spirit to look around and see all of these images, all of this idolatry going on. And it's, it's some testimony of the fact that we cast about for God's, when we're walking around in the darkness, that he could come across an altar that was built to the unknown God. Um, and you would find altars like this because what would sometimes happen is a, is a plague would break out or everyone would start getting sick and everyone would start running around asking which God is upset. Maybe we've done something to upset Zeus and that's why we have this plague and so you'll offer it to Zeus but the plague goes on and then you think, well, maybe we upset Hera and Apollo and you just start going down the list and it's still going on and people are still getting sick and so somebody says, maybe there's a God nobody knows anything about and he's upset or she's upset. Maybe we should just throw up an altar here, you know, just kind of throw up, to mix our metaphors, a Hail Mary. Let let us throw that up and see if this works. Just make an altar to an unknown God and offer a sacrifice here and say, sorry we left you out. But you know, as Paul looks around and sees this, it's just a testimony to how we're just stumbling around in the dark if we try to worship in any other way than led by God's word. That worship is important, that worship is important for us to get right. Um, the, the second commandment is a fairly exhaustive commandment. It tells us a lot more than just the bare commandment, right? It gives us the reason that God gives the commandment. You're not to make any images or worship in any other way than I've commanded my word. Why? Because I am a jealous God. Um, I don't know how you feel when you hear that word. I think in our culture it has very bad connotations. You know, if you say someone has a jealous husband, that's not, no one says, oh, well, how nice for you, right? That, that's not a compliment when someone says something like that because we have so ingrained in our mind that picture of jealousy, you know, Shakespeare's green-eyed monster from Othello, right? The, the all-consuming jealousy that ends up destroying you, um, that's really focused on itself, that's selfish in the end, that wants to hold on to other things, And so sometimes when we see that word jealousy applied to God, it can be hard for us to understand 
in what sense is God jealous? Well, in a holy sense, a holy jealousy means a passion to protect what's his, what's loved. Um, A passion to protect the things that belong properly to God. Um, And we should be thankful for his holy jealousy. Um, Maybe we could kind of roughly say it's sort of like a mother bear with her cubs. You know, if a couple, if you're hiking and cubs pass in front of you and then a mother bear comes, you know, you better not get anywhere near those cubs because that mama bear will be jealous for those cubs. They're hers. She'll protect them. Um, she'll tear herself apart to protect them. Right? That's, that's the kind of sense of jealousy. God loves us so much that he will not permit us to run away from him. He will not share that relationship with anyone else. Um, He loves us enough not to let us go. Um, It's sort of the way we we say sort of from the Song of Songs, right? I am my beloved's and my beloved is is mine. That's not a possessiveness, trying to hold on to a possession. That's a giving and being given, right? That's, that's a willing relationship. And that's, that's what God has entered into with his people, a loving relationship where he won't turn us over to someone else. Right? What would we think of a God who didn't care how we worshiped? You know, if God came to us and said, I don't, I don't care what you do. What, what would that say to us about how God loved us if he just didn't care? Um, The fact that he cares so much is because he loves us so much. He won't share that relationship with any other false god. He won't share our love. He won't let our love be split between him and another false god. Because he knows that that would be death for us. And he loves us enough not to let us go. I'm a jealous god. Therefore you shall have no other gods before me. Um, It's very important that we understand that as we come to this commandment. God cares because he loves. Um, And the God who loves us is a living, active God. Um, That's in one sense why he's so dishonored when we try to reduce him to an idol. Um, You can't really serve the true God through idols. Right? Right? Paul is witnessing that in Athens. You've tried. You've cast about. You even are throwing up idols to unknown God, or altars to unknown gods. So let me tell you who God is. This God who you worship as unknown, Paul says, I'm going to make him known. And in verse 29 of, of Acts 17, he says very powerfully, We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of men. God is not like these things. God is not like these things. That's why he doesn't want to be imaged as one of these things. He doesn't want us looking at him as if he's like these other things. Right? You can't reduce God to that because what are you doing? You're taking the creator and making him nothing more than the creation. 
You're taking the God who stands over all things and you're sort of bringing him down into the things that he's made. It's a terrible exchange. Um, It's the exchange that fools enter into to reduce the creator to the creation. That's what Paul says in Romans 1, 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. To take the immortal glory of God and reduce it to the stuff of this world, this fallen world. And even when people say, but I made a golden God, isn't that precious? It's still nothing compared to the immortal glory of the Creator. Right? Even the best idol is still not as good as the basic stuff God's made. Right? I remember going and seeing uh, King Tutankhamun's relics when they, were, when they were passing around this exhibit. You know? And there were so many golden cobras um, that was a big thing in Egypt, you know, the, the image of a cobra and it, with the hood extended and all made in gold. And it was gold everywhere, you know, gold, all these, all these cobras. But there wasn't a single one of those cobras that could bite you. There wasn't a single one of those cobras that could live or move or do anything. You know, they looked big and ferocious, but you could have gone and flicked them in the nose and they couldn't have done anything about it. And with all the with all the craftsmanship and skill and expense that went into making all of those golden cobras, there still wasn't any of them that, was as, that would be as fearsome as an Egyptian cobra that God made. That lived and moved and was dangerous. Right? Even, even, even the stuff we make pales in comparison to what he makes, and it's still not him. It's still just the things he's made. That's why it's sort of the height of foolishness to bring the creator down into the creation. It's fundamentally to make God what he's not. In a profound sense. To take and make something that is inadequate to his deity and is unworthy of his majesty. Like a one commentator put it, to carve God into a piece of wood or stone is to deny his attributes, the essential characters of his divine being. An idol makes the infinite God finite, the invisible God visible, the omnipotent God impotent, the all-present God local, the living God dead, and the spiritual God material. In short, it makes him the opposite of what he actually is. That's what's so bad about that. It's not only true when we do that of God, it's true when we do that of our Lord Jesus Christ. We shouldn't make images of him either. Um, And that's why we need the clarification of the commandment. Uh, The commandment is clear, but we also need that clarification in question 97. May we not then make any image at all? Well, as we said, God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. You can't make a picture of God. By definition, any picture you make of him, as we've said, will be inadequate of his deity and unworthy of his majesty. And the same is true of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's God. Right? We're not to make images of Jesus, or we do exactly to Jesus what we do to God when we make an idol. Jesus is a living human being. 
in heaven, in glory, interceding for us, praying for us, defending us, protecting us, active for us. We take them, put them down into a picture, and what does he become? Right? That's what, he, that's what he's reduced to. With, with a sash and blonde hair and blue eyes, probably. Just like they all had in Palestine, right? Um, we, have this, we have this picture, and we know that it's not Jesus, Right? For it to be a picture of Jesus, it has to actually look like Jesus. Do we know what Jesus looked like? No. Right? The best description we have is a negative description. There was nothing about him that made people want to come to him. That's at best a negative description. And so any, any picture we make is not him. Right? Imagine you had a picture, a picture frame on your, on your table at home and it had the picture that came with the frame, right? the model that, that comes in the frame. And you said, this is my wife or this is my husband or these are my children. And then someone met your husband or your wife or your children and said, that's not them. That looks nothing like them. He said, well, it's not really a picture of them. Right? What good is that? A picture that doesn't look like the person. You, you can't do that anyway because we don't know what he looked like. So it's sort of silly to make a Jesus that looks like what we think he looks like. We don't know what he looks like. And what's even worse is that Jesus was truly human, but he was also truly God. And his divinity was never separated from his humanity. And so sometimes people will say, well, but this is just Jesus the human being. And I always want to say Jesus the human being was also Jesus God. And God cannot and may not be portrayed in any way. Um, and, and if you think this is just a reformed minister working out his gripes from the pulpit, there's another reason why we shouldn't look to see pictures of Jesus that aren't really Jesus. Because what is the hope of glory? That we will see him face to face. That we will see him as he is. We have not had that vision yet. And it's held out to us as one of the great hopes of glory for the Christian. That one day all who know him and love him and who've waited for him will see him. Not a picture of him that some artist has made, but him as he really is. The living image of the invisible God. Um, And that's why we shouldn't want to see any picture of Jesus until we still see the real thing. God cannot and may not be physically portrayed. Um, We shouldn't do that. We should let God be God and worship Him as He's commanded us in His Word. Um, So what about other things? Can we make pictures of other things? Um, Well, yes, right? Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images in order to worship them or serve God through them. Right? You can, you can draw pictures of creatures. Uh, sometimes the boys and girls come up after church and show what they were drawing while I was preaching. That's fine. Um, but I don't take it and tear it up and say, that's idolatry, right? Um, you, you can make pictures of creatures just so long as you don't then take the picture you made and bow down to it. Um, or try to worship God through it. That's where you get into trouble. Um, and that's what we're, we're saying here. It's not wrong to make paintings or sculptures or artwork of, of the things that God has made, but don't use them for worship. Don't bow down to them. 
Uh, we always have to remember the warning that's contained in Psalm 115, uh, which, is put, which is put so poignantly by the psalmist. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their gods are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but they do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. And then listen to this. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. Right? Idols are dead nothings. And what happens if you worship an idol? You become a dead nothing. Um, Those who make them become like them. Silent, insensitive, immobile, dead. Um, That's the warning that comes to us. And the alternative is wonderful. Those who serve God become like him. Right? Those who serve God become like him. And so like we talked about this morning, you have to choose who you're going to serve. Are you going to serve dead idols that, and become dead nothings like them? Or are you going to serve the living God and live? And that's why we always need to, to confront that caution that comes to us in God's word, which seems to be so obvious but still needs to be said from time to time. Right? Not everything I say from the pulpit is profound. Maybe we say not everything. Um, but the thing is, we need to say the things that aren't that profound. And one of the greatest statements in the catechism is, is an obvious sort of, this is first day stuff for Sinus. Don't we all know this already? But he says in this caution that comes to us in the last question in our Lord's Day, what does question 98 say? Um, we should not try to be wiser than God. We should not try to be wiser than God. Um, That, I think, is one of the greatest statements in the catechism. Because it so wonderfully summarizes what we tend to do all the time. Is in some way, shape, or form say, God, I think I know better. Like, that doesn't seem like a good idea. So you have this great good news that you want to spread across the world and your plan is to give it to ministers who will talk to people for 35 and sometimes even 45 minutes and you expect that to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's got to be a better way to do it. Um, But we shouldn't try to be wiser than God. Um, when, When the things that God has given to us for worship seem insufficient to us, we need to remember that we ought not to be wiser than God. He knows what he's doing. Um, I had a chance to preach through the book of Exodus when I was in Torrance, and you know, it has all the instructions for the tabernacle, all the things there to build. Um, and at one point I said, you'll notice there are no instructions for building a golden suggestion box where God will take your comments on his worship and invites your feedback and would like to hear what you'd have to say, how he can improve your worship experience. Um, God never does that because he knows what's best for you. Um, And he knows if he gives a suggestion box, you get strange fire and golden calves. Um, And so God knows what we need in our work. And that's important. Question 98 is an important question. But may not images as books for the unlearned be permitted in churches? No. 
We should not try to be wiser than God. He wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. Right. This was a really important question during the Reformed era because there were so many people who couldn't read. Um, One of the great reasons there was such a a rise in literacy was the Reformation was passionate about saying we have to teach people to read so people can read the Bible. Um, We need people to be able to read the Bible so they can check the spirits and see if they are of God. Uh, So they don't just have to always take the church's word for it. They can read the word of God for themselves in their own language. But they wrestled with that at the time. What What about when people don't read? They don't know They can't have a copy of their Bible. They can't read it. So if they're not learned, maybe we should just take images and teach them through idols. They might not be able to read about Jesus, but what if we make a little image of Jesus? Can't that help them learn? And people still are are doing that kind of thing today and saying, you know, people can be visual learners, and so shouldn't we make use of things? And you'll talk to people and say, well, I, I know tons of people that have been helped through the Jesus movie and um, who, who were really torn up by the passion of the Christ. Aren't these things great things that can help teach people? But that's not how God wants his people instructed. And we sort of kid ourselves when we say, well, we're living in an age where this thing, these kinds of things are really needed. It's unlike those previous generations. I sort of want to say, have you read your Bible? Right? It's always been the visual that has tripped us up. It's always been that inclination to run to the visual that's always been the inclination of people as far back as we can remember in the Christian community. Abraham had to leave his idols. And what keeps creeping in through the whole story of Israel, there's always idols around. Someone's always got them even when you don't think they have them or didn't know they have them. Suddenly someone's burying idols and you think, where do these idols come from? Um, They always had them. They've always been around. People have always been visually centered. People have always been tangibly centered. And what, what does God always want? He said, I want you to listen to me. And so often what we see interferes with the voice of God. Think back to that first temptation. Look at that fruit. It's pleasing to the eye. Did God really say, the day you eat of it, you'll surely die? You see how the the visual is competing with the word? That's what, that's what idols always do. They compete with the word of God. And they've always been around. We're kidding ourselves if we say, well, you know, now we're living in this. That We've always been living in this kind of thing. People have always wanted something other than the word of God. But what has God always wanted? Listen to me. Um, you know, my, my father's argued pretty effectively, I think, that the, the middle of the Psalter is the middle psalm of the middle book, and the middle verse of the whole Psalter is, Oh, my people, if you would but listen to me. The visual so often gets in the way of listening to God. Um, that's why God doesn't want us distracted by other things, He doesn't want us substituting other things. 
He says, listen to me. And that makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? Because if we have a living God, shouldn't he want a living word being brought to his people? Right? We who get up here and do this, who are called to preach, we, we are well aware of how limiting it is. We are well aware of our own limitations. We are well aware how far short we fall. We are well aware of our insufficiency for this task. The message is too big and we're too small. Um, But why does the Lord do things this way? It's so that a living word comes to his people. Because he's a living God who speaks to his people a living word, and that word comes and it makes them alive. Um, The reason God doesn't want images at the end of the day is not only can he not be made an image, but there is already an image of God. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the image of God. And you know the only other images that God will tolerate of himself? It's you. You are being made into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. He won't share his glory with gold or silver or stone or wood because he's made his glory to be shared with you. He made us in his image. In the image and likeness of God, he made us, male and female. He created them. He made us in his image. And when that image was shattered and broken in the fall, he remade it after the image of his son. That's, that's the good news. That's why there's no place for any other images. Because Christ is the image of the invisible God and he is making us into images of him. That's, the, that's the, the final truth that comes to us when we think about the fact that when we see him, we will be like him. When we see him who is the image of the invisible God, we will have been made by him into images of the invisible God. When we see him who is the radiance of the glory of God and the imprint of his nature, we will reflect that glory. And that's why he even is saying, all their images are not worthy of me. They're inadequate. They're unworthy. Because it's my people who want want my image to shine forth in. Um, That's why there's no place for idolatry or images, or any kind of worship other than he's commanded, because he's commanded a perfect kind of worship that leads to making us in the image of Jesus. And everything else is making God into false images that will end up making you into a dead nothing. And so God says, stay away from those things. I hate those things. Because I'm doing something better, something living something truly glorious. Um, And so we don't want to turn to dead images or try to be wiser than God, but seek after the true image of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the lively preaching of his word. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for reminding us once again that you cannot be represented by a picture or a sculpture and have reminded us of that wonderful truth that you intend for your likeness to appear in us. And so, Lord, we thank you for your grace to us that you would fashion us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would worship you in ways that are pleasing in your sight, that we would follow your word and not try to invent our own kinds of worship, but always seek after the things that are pleasing to you. And so we continue to subject ourselves to your word and always study it to see what is pleasing in your sight and then do that in the confidence that even if it doesn't seem best to us, it seems best to you and that's enough. And help us trust what you have appointed to build us up into images even of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your jealous love for us, that you will not share that love with any other false God that is no God, so that we would not become dead nothings like idols, but would live and live forever. Thank you for your goodness to us. Help us to follow you in gratitude and faithfulness. And hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.